Hello, everybody. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are here today. This is a recovery podcast. Uh, we talk about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on how you roll, who you are, and what you consider recovery. I mean, maybe to you, recovery is recovery, but either way, um, we are here today with a very special guest and friend. Um, he is somebody that I've known for a lot of years now. Um, he actually, uh, we worked alongside each other as case managers. He was already there before me. We were at a place called Rock Solid in Costa Mesa, California, many moons ago, I think back in 2014. He was there before me. He he taught me the ropes. He showed me what to do. He showed me how to go about it. Everything I'd learned in school, he, he was already doing. And then uh, we were kind of a part of a dream team. We worked uh, alongside each other with a few other people helping a lot of people. And some of those people are still success stories to this day. So his name is Richie Chapman. Richie, welcome to the corner. Good to yeah. have you. Um, so Richie. Be here. Um, Thanks. Thanks, Patrick. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, we want to talk about you today. Uh, usually what we do is we delve into your past and see who you were growing up, um, you know, where you were born, where you were raised, how you were raised, some of the things that happened in your life, what you got into, and then we'll get into the recovery part. Obviously, the topic for today is, um, you know, can somebody gain sobriety after a relapse? And I do believe wholeheartedly anybody and everybody can, especially you, you're a living testament uh, to that. But let's talk about you first. Uh, where were you born? Uh, East of <laughs> yeah it's kind of pausing a little bit but um yeah it was, it was oh is it is it uh jerking on us yeah we had a perfect connection before but um go ahead and keep talking i think you're good mm -hmm. now it cleared up so born okay, cool. where raised so where? yeah uh east la um was kind of raised all over um my mom and dad, my dad was an alcoholic and uh, in and out of the rooms of AA for a long time. And uh, so we moved around a lot, kind of grew up in Upland, uh, San Bernardino County uh, in Riverside County mm -hmm. in Riverside for a while. And uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom remarried when I was 11. Um, and we moved, my mom and I, to Laguna Beach, California when I was uh, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Okay. So just you and your mom moved there. Is that what you said? Yeah. So just mom and I, and my mom remarried uh, to a man uh, named Ron, who's my dad today, you know, and, and uh, yeah, he lived in Laguna beach and uh, yeah, we moved when I was about 11 years old to Laguna. Now, when you say yeah, East, East LA, like which part of East LA, the rough part or the not so rough? Part? Um, I, to man, I don't even really know. I know that when we would be driving uh, on the freeway, my mom would always point out the hospital that I was born at. But I don't know exactly. I'm not. I'm not super familiar with Los Angeles, so I don't even know the exact area. I think I remember back in the day when when you and I were working together, and I told you I was going to move to LA. I remember you telling me like you don't really go to LA, and I'm like, really? It's that close, and you don't really go, or you haven't really gone? Okay, so yeah. so you you ended up in. Beautiful Laguna Beach, 11 or 12 mm -hmm. years old. Yeah. Uh, any, was there siblings, did you say, or no? 
Yeah, so I grew up with three older sisters, but they were all moved out by the time my mom and dad re- uh, divorced. And uh, and then my stepdad had two children my age. So I had two step siblings when we moved to Laguna. And uh, it was it was a uh, it was an environmental and sh- social shock when I was going from Riverside Upland to Laguna Beach. Like it was it was a shock uh, for a teenager, I think, you know, I but it but it must have been nice. I mean, at least to be in an area where there's beach. I mean, all, everybody mm-hmm. out there in Riverside wants to come to the beach cities as much as they can. And you were right by the beach. There's no part of Laguna that's really not close to the beach. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a dream. And to be honest, I wish I could have appreciated it more when I was a kid. I think when you're a kid and your parents are going through a divorce and stuff like that, you're, I mean, it's, it's just hard to appreciate those things. When I go back to Laguna, cause my mom and uh, stepdad still live there. And in fact, we're coming out there in July, but there's so much appreciation I have for it now, you know? Um, yeah. But I was just trying to make, I was just trying to make it through those times, you know? Right. So growing up down there, I mean, what was it like? Uh, I know divorces don't sit well with a lot of youngsters. I know it didn't sit well with me either. Some kids would love for their parents to get divorced. They're totally fine with it, but it definitely messed with me. So uh, it sounds like it, it didn't sit well with you. But during that time, what was it like growing up in Laguna Beach? I mean, what were you doing? Were you hanging out with certain types of people doing certain types of things? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, um, you know, growing up in Riverside, I had to be, I had to be really careful with who I hung out with. And, and I think I grew up not trusting people. Um, because in Riverside, if I looked at somebody the wrong way, I went to a middle school of over 2000 kids. And then I ended up in a, in a high school in Laguna with less than 800. So Mm -hmm. everybody knew everybody in Laguna. I mean, um, and so I was the new kid. Right. And, um, and so, I didn't trust people. And when people would invite me in, like I remember one of my first days in middle school, I had this kid at lunch, like say, hey, kid, come over here, new kid, come over here. And I was like, no, I'm not coming over there. You know, if you want to if you want to hang out, you can come here. So I was very standoffish because I just didn't trust people. I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know who to believe. And uh, I just felt awkward and out of place. And um, and so. I, I quickly realized, um, especially in high school, that I could kind of befriend everybody. I, I kind of turned into a chameleon where um, where whoever was in front of me, I would just I would just kind of adapt to that environment. I would adapt to that lifestyle. I would adapt to that type of language. I would adapt to whatever hobbies they had. And I could kind of fit my way or wiggle my way in socially. And um, and that's what I began to do. And so really, um, I was kind of I was kind of friends with everybody and anybody, you know, at, once I fast forward a little bit and kind of realized, you know, um, these kids are just uh, they're just different in Laguna. You know, it was cool going to the beach. Obviously, we went to the beach all the time. And and, um, you know, they're uh, yeah, but that's kind of how I got into drugs and alcohol. Um, I was terrified of alcohol. I, I think the first time, the first drug I ever did was I smoked some weed when I was like 11 years old with my cousin. And the first time I drank was 15 at the house party on a Friday night, um, just because I wanted to fit in. And I wanted to, like I said, adapt. I was invited. I went with my buddy Jimmy at the time. And uh, my first drink was two forties of King Cobra. 
and the seniors, um, I was a freshman and the seniors duct taped both the forties to my hands and told me that I couldn't pee until I finished both forties and, uh, didn't take me long to finish those things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a wild night. That was, that was my first drink. That Some was initiation uh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Now, academically, how were you doing when you were going to high school? Well, I always tell people I went um, to high school for the high part, not the school part. <laughs> right? right. I was I, socially, I was doing very well. Academically, very poor. I was, uh, um, I wasn't doing well academically. I didn't, I didn't like school very much. I didn't mm -hmm. like the academics. So, except for like extracurricular, like I was, I was very creative. Um, so I joined theater, and I was in, I was in acting, and I loved that. Um, I was good at it, and uh, I really took to that. I was in a dance production team. I, you know, I love dancing and, and doing salsa and swing dancing and partnership dancing. So I excelled in that, but anything with like English or math, I liked history, although I didn't like the some of the teachers that I had in history. And so if I didn't like the teacher, I tended to do poorly, you know, um, <laughs> kind of goof was, off in, in class and stuff like that. Was this at Laguna Beach High? Yep. And was this before they started filming the show in that area or was it after? Yeah. So I was a senior when they, when MTV came in. And in fact, um, and when MTV came in to film, they wanted to do it on our class. So I was the class of 2002 and uh, the school could not give permission. And so MTV went to parents and started getting consent from parents of specific kids. And uh, they ended up making the show about the, kids that were a grade or two younger than me. So 2004, 2003. And my big claim to fame, Stephen Coletti uh, was one of the main characters on uh, Laguna Beach. And in eighth grade, I dated his older sister, Lauren Coletti. And so that's my big claim to fame for that show. But we would show up to parties and MTV would be there. And, and to be honest, dude, I wouldn't even stay at those parties. At that point in my um, drinking and drugging, uh, I wanted to party and I, I like to party the way that I like to party and MTV kind of ruined that because they would try to stage things and make people be quiet. And, and so me and buddies would show up or whatever. And then we just split, like we'd be there as soon as MTV would be there. We we're like, we're out of here. Okay. Yeah. And then as far, as far as like, did you end up finishing school on like when you were supposed to graduating on time? Yeah, that's a good question. So my last semester of senior year, I uh, opted out and I went to a continuation school because I had so many credits to make up that there was I wasn't even going to be able to walk with my class. And um, I was going to have to go to summer school. And if I went to this continuation school, I could finish on time at least. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what I ended up doing. So I went to a continuation school, didn't graduate, didn't get to walk with my class. I went to the senior parties, though. Um, I did go to those, and yeah. uh, but um, yeah, it was kind of a bummer, man. Like again, so this is the progression of the disease, I think, of alcoholism and drug addiction, man. Because a lot of the things that I really enjoyed, it already started to take things away from me. Um, I was I was cast in the senior show of this musical called um, "How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying," and my director, Mark Dressler, at the time. Um, casted me as the main character and he literally 
picked this show for me and I, and he cast me in it. And it was in the second semester of my senior year. That's when it was going to show. And he found out that I was, I wasn't going to be able to make it. And so I didn't even get to do that show, man. And that was like a huge dream of mine to continue and pursue acting and, um, and yeah, drugs and alcohol took that from me, man. So I didn't get to do that show. And, and then it was just kind of, it was kind of downhill from there, man. Downhill in what way? Like what happened moving forward, like into your young adulthood? Well, um, drinking beer and, uh, and smoking pot, um, started to progress in taking and Vicodin and, and, and doing cocaine and, and uh, I was a I was a assistant manager of Domino's Pizza. And so and I started dealing weed. And then when I was introduced to cocaine, I started dealing that as well. And and I would deal it right out of the door of Domino's. And um, I started hanging out with kids that were that were further along in their drug journey, I think. And so I was introduced to methamphetamine, to heroin. And um, and it just became who I was. It became my identity. I I. I identified with those guys, um, you know, two close friends of mine at the time, their name were, uh, or still are Russell and Ray and, uh, and Joel. And, and we used to just run around man town and all over and, and, uh, pick up drugs and, and sell them and, and party at the house and do a bunch of hallucinogens and, and, uh, my buddy Corey. And, uh, yeah, it just became about, the drugs and the alcohol and the party and trying to keep that going as much as we could. Like I remember one fourth of July, like being so, so out of my mind and uh, walking barefoot because I had lost my sandals and I was so drunk and so loaded. Um, I walked, I don't know how far barefooted trying to get to my girlfriend's house at the time. And um, just miserable. I remember that. I remember that night being a night where I was alone. It was one of the first times that I was like, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? I was probably like 18 or 19 at this time. And um, yeah, it was, it was miserable, man. Now yeah. I remember your first attempt at getting sober was how old were you? 24? Yeah. Well, yeah, technically the first time I ever really gave it a try um, like I said, my dad was an alcoholic and he was in and out of the rooms. Like one of my first memories of an AA meeting was when I was like six years old, man, with my dad, to be honest. And so when I was like 18, I, I was starting to get introduced to outpatient centers and things like that um, mm -hmm. because there were consequences that were coming up. Um, I had been in multiple fights um, where there was uh, I had assault on my record. Um, I had a domestic violence case against me. And so I had been arrested a couple of times by the time I was like 19, um, you know, and uh, and so I would I would get let out of jail because of these drug charges or whatever, or these or drunken publics or whatever. And they would assign me outpatients or treatments. And so I was I would go to those um, just to try to get the get the man off my back a little bit and try to please my parents. But um, yeah, it wasn't until it got really bad when I was 24. I eventually, I eventually got arrested, um, for a residential burglary. Um, and I was drunk one night and, and high. And, uh, and like I said, I had already, I had already progressed at this point doing meth. And, um, and I was invited to this after party at 2am. So I was, yeah, I must've been like 23 at this point, but 
um, everybody passed out and I, I ransacked the house and it was about six months later, somebody, somebody identified me in a Laguna beach high school yearbook picture. And, uh, my parents' house, um, was raided at like four in the morning and the cops came and picked me up. And then I went to OCJ main jail in orange County. Um, when I was like 23 and I was fighting this case, I was in County jail for about eight and a half months fighting this residentially with a strike. They were trying to give me a strike and all this stuff. And, um, or no, I was there for 10 and a half months. I'm sorry, not eight and a half. I was there for 10 and a half months. And eventually they let me out. Um, time served. They gave me five years of formal probation, um, community service. I had to do like a domestic violence class. I had to like do all this stuff. And they gave me a joint suspension, which meant that the the minimum for my uh, my charges was three years in prison in state prison. And so joint suspension said that they suspended that sentence if I completed successfully my five years of formal probation. So they let me out and they gave me five years probation. And so I was out for about a year and a half and I couldn't stay sober, man. I uh, that's when I went to the Salvation Army a couple of times. I got I got kicked out of there. I gave my probation officer like 15 dirty drug tests, man. And then it was uh, May 8th of 2009. I walked into my probation. My dad, my, my stepdad took me. I was supposed to work with him that day. He took me to my probation to check in with him and I didn't come out. My probation officer uh, put handcuffs on me and sent me to prison. And that was in, uh, yeah, that was May 8th of 2009. I was 24. Okay, so it was outpatient programs was the only amount amount of rehabilitation that they were giving you. You didn't go to inpatient treatment. You were pretty much going to prison, correct? Yeah, the only the only inpatient that they did try to sentence me to was Salvation Army, and I was in Salvation Army for about forty days, and I got kicked out of there for stealing. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Salvation Army over in Anaheim. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The mothership. Yes. Okay. So then you went to prison for how long? Uh, I did a turnaround. That's when, I mean, yeah, I was there. I was sentenced to 16 months, but they gave me my 10 and a half months that I had served in county as time served. So I actually only did six and a half months when I was in prison. I did two months in reception in Wasco or no, I was, I was in county jail waiting to go to prison for two months. I went to Wasco state prison for reception for two months. And then they sent me to uh, CMC West in San Luis Obispo for two months, two and a half months. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So then you got out and what'd you do with your life? Well, it's, it's kind of what happened to my life when I was in prison, man, that, that kind of set me up and segued me into my recovery. So May 8th of 2009 was my sobriety date for a long time, Pej. Um, I didn't get I didn't get loaded. It was actually in county jail. It was the first time that I ever said no to drugs because drugs and alcohol are available in county jails and prisons, even more readily available in prison. But I remember a kid uh, crushing up some pills and offering me some pills when I was in county one time. And I, it was my first moment of clarity where I thought to myself, I'm in here because I can't stay sober. If I get loaded, doesn't this defeat the purpose? That was like my exact thought. And uh, today I know that that wasn't my thought, that that was a, a thought of God. And, um, and so I said no, and uh, I stayed sober in there, and I started to uh, pray. I, I knew something had to change. I just didn't know how to do it, and I just knew that I couldn't get loaded anymore. I, I, if I, 
if I kept getting loaded, I was going to continue to go down this road and, uh, and I was going to end up being like my dad because my dad was in and out of prison and drug uh, treatment facilities. And I, I, I just didn't want that, man. And uh, when I was in county jail waiting to go to Wasco State Prison, my aunt showed up and she told me that my dad was going to be in Wasco State Prison at the same time. And it was one of the first times I, I prayed a specific prayer. Um, and I just asked God at this point, I was like, God, give me because I hated my dad. Right. Like I hated who he was and who he had become. And he left me when I was young and all this stuff. And he didn't love me and he loved drugs and alcohol more than me. And and um, I just asked God to help me forgive my dad, like help me not hate him anymore. I also was terrified of going to prison because I don't know what if you see what sits before you, but this beautiful young man is going to get rocked in prison. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I want to believe I'm a tough guy, but really I'm a lover, man. And um, and so I was scared. And so I asked God to protect me. And and then I asked, us, which was odd because this wasn't like me either. But I asked God to put somebody in my dad's life that was going to help him and encourage him and set him on the right path. And when I went to Wasco State Prison, man, out of 6,000 inmates, I went to this uh, dorm, uh, H4, and there was like 360 dudes in this dorm. There was two sides. There was an A side and a B side. And when I walked in, every, and there was a day room in the middle, and uh, I saw my dad when I was in H4 in Wasco State Prison, and there he was. And in that moment, Pej, in that moment, I don't, people say that God speaks to them, right? Like, I do believe God spoke to me, but it wasn't like an audible voice. It wasn't like all of a sudden there was like this, the sure. clouds parted, all this stuff. It was a reminder of my prayer. And the reminder was you wanted a chance to forgive your dad. I'm giving you that chance. You wanted me to protect you by me putting you with him. I'm protecting you. And you also wanted somebody in his life to help and encourage him. Well, who do you think that is? And all of a sudden I realized I was, I was the answer to my own prayer. And uh, I was in prison with my dad for two and a half weeks uh, before he left to a mainline. And then I was I left two weeks after that. And I, got, uh, I got the chills right now, man. Yeah. Yeah. Me, too. It's it's <laughs> wild, bro. Like it's it's unbelievable to me still like that, that 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 happened and that that, you know, it's just a wild story, man. And I lived that. And um, yeah. And there was more there was I we don't even have the time and I don't have the ability to go into the detail. But even when I went to San Luis Obispo, there was a lot of God things that happened, man, that like it helped me. I guess the big thing that it helped me realize was that there was something greater at work in my life. And it was undoubtedly, it was beyond a shadow of a doubt in the, at this point in my life. Um, mm -hmm. I was at my, my, my deepest, darkest, most broken place. And the doors that opened the, protection that was given to me, the, the places that opened up and, and like the opportunities that arose just started to happen. And, um, and when I got out of prison, um, I actually went to Pat Moore foundation. Uh, I got a, I got, um, six months, what was called SAP at the time, which was state assistant program. And the state of California paid for 90 days of inpatient treatment facility at Pat Moore. And really? then 90, days of sober living and outpatient, which I went to Nancy Clark's in Costa Mesa. And that's where my, my, my recovery, even though I was sober at six months at this point, it's when my recovery actually really began. 
So, okay, this is interesting. I, I think it was around that time, perhaps, uh, maybe after Nancy Clark's, maybe during, I don't know. I met you when I worked at a place called Morningside. You showed up with Jer Jesse. I think it was Jesse from a place, from a sober living called Windward Way that was not yet a treatment center. Jeremy. Jeremy, that's it. Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yep. It was Jeremy that you showed up with. Um, uh, you came, I think you guys were bringing or picking up a client that was needing to either leave us or come back to us. I can't remember exactly what it was. I just remember you. I remember meeting you, being introduced to you. I thought, good looking young man. Like he got sober <laughs> young. That's what yeah. I thought, right? And yeah. uh, I didn't know about all this story. Now, that's when we met. And then I think uh, possibly... A couple of years later, we we remet, and that's when I remembered you. I was like, I know you, Richie. Like, remember when you came to that detox over in off of Orange Avenue in Costa Mesa, and you mm -hmm. you said, Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and, and at this point now, we were working alongside each other. So, yeah. from what I remember about you it, during that time is that you were fucking really in the program, like you were really involved in the program. Yeah, yeah, I was, and and you were instrumental. In a lot of people's recovery, especially at that center that we worked at, what I saw is a lot of youngsters, because you were already super young, but you were their case manager. And yeah. uh, a lot of them looked to you to see like how how one this young can become sober and really embrace their sobriety. And you you were very comfortable in your skin. You presented yourself well. I, I sat in your group sometimes and watched the types of groups that you would run. And I was like, this dude motivates these youngsters. Like he's a, he's a real one. This is, and then on top of that, like when I had to get my feet wet and go from being like a frontline tech worker to actually doing case management, uh, I was in fear. I was very much in fear. I was like, everything I'm learning, I've learned in school, I have to apply to my job right now. I'm getting paid a little bit more, which is good, but like, I'm kind of afraid, but like you made me feel really comfortable when Jerry was there too. He was kind of like the, our, our samurai, Jerry, you know, yeah, um, Jerry Brown. Yeah. The Yoda. Yeah, yeah. He was like, he was the man, you know, but, yeah. um, but you showed me like biopsych socials, all these different things, like how to go about it, how to, you know, uh, work alongside the therapists. And we had a really good team. Like I, I've always saw that as like the dream team because we had a lot of success stories that came out. Now I also remember you got married around that time. I think it was, uh, probably a couple of years in, if I'm not mistaken, um, right. You yep. seem like you, you were really in love. Um, yep. and I really love that. And I, I love your wife. She's a great lady. Um, what happened if, okay. So if, if in 2009 you got sober and you, how long did you stay sober for and what happened? Yeah. Um, I, I was sober for nine years, nine, nine and a half years. And yeah, when we met, we must have met around 2011, 2012. And I remember that. I think I was the detox coordinator at the time at Pat Moore when, I, when we met at that sober living with Jeremy, because I think right. I was picking a guy up for detox. Mm -hmm. But I advanced in my career. I advanced in my, um, my recovery and practicing the principles of AA in my life. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. I was very involved in my, my own recovery and then also in the treatment world. And I thought that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life, Pej. Like, ultimately, um, that's what I wanted to do. I loved helping people. I loved helping the young guys. And, and uh, I was very um, 
Yeah, I was a I was a road warrior for for AA and for treatment man for a long time. And uh, I think what ended up happening and yeah, I met my wife um, in, in the rooms and, and we got married in 2013. And yeah, we opened up the Wallace house, right? We you and I and Jerry and we yeah. were at the Wallace house at uh, Rock Solid for a while. And you're right. Like we had a great team. And Greg, if you remember Greg, the clinical yes. director. Greg Young. Um, yeah. And I still remember some of the clients that are there and I still see them today. And so a lot of them are still sober today. Yes. And yes. Um, and it's so cool to see them and where their lives have gone. And and uh, but yeah, so I think what ended up happening, Pej, to be I mean. It's not um, it's not a surprise, but what ended up happening was it became less about helping others and it became about helping myself it, uh, you know if that i'm trying to i'm trying to boil it down to to make it simple but there's so much complexity when it comes to that because i didn't it was insidious like that self-will was insidious i did not recognize it insidious uh by definition is a power that is so strong it talks about it in the big book um it's so strong that it has you before you even realize it has you. And once you realize it has you, it's too late. And that's mm. what happened um, to me is my self-will run riot became so insidious and so strong that it had me before I even realized it. Once I realized that it, it was too late. And so I stayed sober for a long time. Um, and it wasn't like I was not doing AA. I was doing AA for a long time. I was I was sponsoring dudes. I was working in the treatment facility, but ultimately I was, I was what I was trying to do what I was trying to build Richie's empire. I was going to, and I ultimately did like, I became a CEO of another uh, treatment facility. Um, I opened my own outpatient at one point, like all of a sudden it became less about the, the internal work of another man and helping that man. And it became, how can I, how can I promote Richie's agenda? And, um, and I started to make and I started to fall away from AA. I stopped calling a sponsor. I stopped uh, working with other guys and I became kind of a workaholic in a way where, like I said, I was building this empire and and uh, I made some poor decisions. And, and there was a lot of stuff that had ended up happening um, in my sobriety. I was probably dry out of my nine years. I was dry at like at six years. I think my last three years, I was super dry. Um where I wasn't really working a program at all. I wasn't meditating. I wasn't praying on a regular basis. I, I mean, I kind of was like, there was even one point I went to the church, man. I went to the church. That's what I was going to say. I remember like you had turned to the church mm -hmm. and I, and I wondered like, uh, is he not going to be in the 12 step world anymore? Is the, is he maybe part of the church's 12 step, uh, movement, yeah. but I didn't know exactly what was going on there. Yeah. Neither did I. <laughs> like. <laughs> I had no idea, man. Um, but yeah, I became the youth pastor at his place church. And that was an amazing time, man. Like I, and those kids, you want to talk about kids. Now I see those on Instagram and all this stuff. And they're like 20, 20, some of them sometimes. And, and some of them still reach out time to the time, but, um, and, um, that's when things got, um, you there? Okay. Yes. Oh, you're coming in and out. out. Do you hear me? I, I hear you, but uh -oh. it was cutting out a little bit, but I got you now. Okay. 
So you were you were saying those kids? I don't know if it's my, you've seen them. My 62. end or your end? I think it's your end. But you should be good. Um, yeah. Just pause right. Just pause. Yeah. Okay. Probably just keep talking. Dang, that's a bummer. I was just no, getting I, going. I, I know. I hear you right now. So you were talking about the kids that, that were in his oh. place. Yeah, yeah. And when I left the church, I left to go start a treatment facility. And um, that's when things got pretty pretty bad for me. And I was still sober. Um, but And I won't spend a bunch of time, but I wasn't working a program. It was Richie's agenda again. And um, I made a very, very poor decision in my sobriety that cost me a lot internally. And uh, my wife and I, um, at this point, had two children already, and we made the decision to move to Phoenix, Arizona. After a very, very poor decision on my part that I was hiding from everybody, um, and uh, I hadn't relapsed, but I had, I might as well had at that point. Um, and um, yeah, and then without telling anybody what was truly going on, I picked up my family and I, I moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Like kind of like a behavioral relapse, if you will, right? Totally. Yeah. So why why Phoenix yeah. of all places? What 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 brought you to Phoenix, Arizona? Um, well, at the time Lauren and I said that God was taking us to Phoenix. Um, but like I said, I was I was living a lie at this point and um and I just needed to get a, a away from what I was doing. I was—I think I was trying to run away from myself, and I was trying to start new without telling anybody. And um, the Phoenix was the 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 place that made the most sense because it wasn't too far away from my mom, and uh, and then Lauren has family here in Phoenix, so we wanted to be close to family. Um, and then we also liked the economy at the time, and we had um, goals and aspirations to buy a house and to have another child and and uh, get a little bit more quality of life for our dollar. So I was kind of looking at trying to raise a family and I just, I just didn't see myself being able to raise a family of five in Southern California on my salary. Okay. So you said you hadn't, when you guys moved there, you hadn't yet relapsed. Why did you relapse or what, what, what happened with the substances? Yeah. So I tried to get, um, connected here in Phoenix. Like I got a sponsor, but again, I had this huge secret. Um, and the sponsor I got here, like I took an eight year chip at this Tuesday night meeting and I got a sponsor and, and, um, I called this sponsor and I did steps one, two, three, and five, uh, one, two, three, four, and five. And I stopped calling the sponsor because it was literally, I was just vomiting on him. Um, this huge secret that I had, and I had to get honest with my wife and it rocked our marriage. And, um, and it rocked kind of our household. And I was walking around without a program, without a sponsor, without the fellowship of AA. Um, I got a new job. I got out of the treatment facility. So I wasn't working in treatment anymore. And um, I wasn't really around recovery anymore. And in those two years from seven to nine, I kind of convinced myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. Like I had a new career. We had bought a house. We had two new cars. And it was all the material stuff that tried to convince my disease that I wasn't alcoholic anymore. And I I told myself, I can have a, you know, I can have a beer at a baseball game or I can have a beer when I'm playing golf. I have a career. I have a family of five. I have a wife. I have two kids. I've, I've made amends for the things that I've done wrong. Like I should be able to, to smoke a joint and, and have some beer. And, um, 
and one night and I did so so much that I ultimately convinced my wife to drink with me and um, and the night that we drank um, I she you know we had three kids at this point we were it was a crazy night we were trying to bathe the kids it was a stressful night and I was just in her ear like let's get a drink let's get a drink let's get a drink and she's sober too she's uh, she was sober at the time eight years and um, and she finally said, gave me the green light and said, go get a bottle of wine. I'm going to put the kids down to bed and, and come home with some wine. We'll have some wine together. And so I went to, there's a Walgreens right down the street from our house. Cause that's where you go to get the really fine wine is Walgreens. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And uh, bro, I remember like, there's a big debate in the rooms of AA. I think that does the, the, does the phenomenon of craving happen before you drink or after you drink? Like, do you have to ingest it before the allergy or not? And, the, and we can go into a seething cauldron of debate on that. Yes. But I, can, I can tell you my experience when I, when I picked up that bottle of wine and I looked at it with nine years, nine and a half years sober and out of the program for a while at that point. But my first thought when I had it in my, and I hadn't drank it, I had not ingested it, but the first thought was, this is not going to be enough. <laughs> and I went over to the beer aisle and I got a 12 pack and I put it back because I didn't want to scare Lauren. I didn't want to scare my wife coming home with a bottle of wine and a 12 pack. So I got a six pack instead. And her and I, um, you know, drank that night and we finished both of those. We finished the bottle of wine together and we finished the six pack together. And and I'd be lying to you if I told you it wasn't a great night because it was. My wife and I connected very well that night. And like I said, we had been going through a lot of emotional stuff in our relationship. And so it brought us together. It brought um, like it was a it was like a right. The, the big book talks about um, a relief, you know, like instant relief. And that's what it was for us when we drank. Um, it was very, very quick, dude, within like two weeks. And we didn't drink all day, every day at that point. But it was like two weeks later, we drank again that night. The second night we drank together, we started talking about cocaine. And it was in October of 2018. And I drove out on a rainy night in Phoenix to go find cocaine, Pej. Like, Where? And I to California? Anywhere. No, no. I was oh, just on the streets of Phoenix because I was like, yeah. you don't need to drive outside of Phoenix to get drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well. What's funny is I didn't know anybody, right? I was sober nine years. I didn't know anybody who had, I was no joke. I'm in front of gas stations asking people as they're walking in, if they have any blow, like oh people thought God. I was, that people probably thought I was a cop. You know what right. I mean? Like I didn't end up getting it that night, but I, when I came home, my <laughs> wife was so scared because we, we had three kids in bed that night, three babies, dude, they were three years old, two years old and like six weeks old. Right. And we were just about to do blow. And so when we woke up the next morning, my wife decided that she was going to get sober again. And I got pissed and I continued at that point to try to convince her and everybody else that I could drink normally. And, um, and thus it began a, a year long, um, uh, just turmoil in my life, man, because I couldn't, I couldn't drink normally. I was hiding it. And, um, I was traveling for work at the time and I was, I was, I would just, I wouldn't show up when I was out of town to this jobs and these departments that I was trying to build. And, and I was lying to everybody and uh, I would try to get sober and I got a sponsor out here. My wife kicked me out at one point. Um, I, I went into a sober living. I tried to get sober. I stayed sober for like 30 days. I came home two weeks later. I drank, but didn't tell anybody. 
I was going to meetings drunk. Um, I was lying to my sponsor and uh, it, and I would, I would be okay for a little while and then everybody would find out and everything would fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that continued to happen for a year, dude, um, where I was lying to my wife um, and uh, living this double life as much as I could trying to, I was trying to have the best of both worlds. Like I was trying to have the sober, richy family life. And then I was also trying to have this like drink on the, on the road, uh, drink when no one's looking and party life, uh, the best that I could. And I was trying to, I was trying to control and enjoy my drinking. And, um, just like the big book talks about, and, uh, and I couldn't have both. I remember my sponsor at the time, well, he's still my sponsor today, but, um, when I was going through it, I had a phone call with him one time and he was like, Richie, you're, you're not, um, you don't have the willingness it takes to stay sober and you don't have the willingness to do the work it state takes to stay drunk. Like you're in, you're on the fence. Like you're trying to do both and you're fucked, you know, excuse my language. I don't know if we can use that language here. Yeah, on you your, can, you on can your use language. Language. Um, and it was, it was true, man. Like, I was, that was, that, that time, that year from 2018 to 2019, uh, again, I found myself in the deepest, like prison prior to that was the deepest, darkest. And then in 2018 to 2019 was the deepest, darkest place I had been in, um, as well on a different level. Like a personal prison. <laughs> if you will. Yes. Perfect. Perfect description of it. Yes. Yeah. So what, what changed? Why, why did you bounce back after the year of being out? I think it was right around, I saw you online right around the beginning of the pandemic and you mm-hmm. had let me know that you had relapsed, but you said yeah. you really seemed like you were gung ho about being in the program again. So what made you decide to come back? So my, on September of 11th of 2019, my wife packed up instead of kicking me out, she she decided that she was just gonna leave because it wasn't working so she packed up all my kids and drove to california to stay with a good friend of ours britain which i think you know britain um yeah I do. but um yeah so she went and stayed with britain and uh september 11th 2019 i got obliterated drunk that night and i i had three days sober at that point i remember and <clears throat> i got so drunk that was a, a big step one experience for me because i didn't want to drink that night but I had to, um, mm. I, I came home from work. I was, I had an empty house. I would, lo- I would lost my kids. I lost my wife. I had an empty spirit, an empty soul, all this stuff. And I went and bought a bottle instead of going to a meeting. And I remember thinking, I don't want to drink this, Richie, you don't have to drink this. You don't have to drink this. And I walked away from the bottle and I just screamed at the top of my lungs in an empty house in this house that I'm sitting in right now. And, um, and I popped the, popped the bottle and, uh, and I drank that night. And I, again, uh, just made some very, very poor decisions. The next day I was supposed to go to work. It was a Thursday. No, it was a Wednesday when I woke up on the 12th of September of 2019. And I wanted to end it all page. Like, I don't, I don't think I had a, a proactive thought of like taking my own life, but I just didn't see it going on. Like I just didn't, I was so, so hopeless, bro. Like I was so hopeless. And I called my sponsor and, uh, and he owns a treatment center out here in Phoenix. And I was trying to get into his spot and he was like, that's a conflict of interest. 
and I know you, you're big into ethics and stuff like that, and you can appreciate that. But my sponsor owns a treatment center. I was trying to get into his, and he wouldn't let me. Like he wouldn't let me into his treatment facility because it's a because he was my sponsor, you know. Yeah. And um, and so I respect and I respected that. him. And I respected him for that. It, it, yeah. it, in the beginning, it hurt. At right in that moment, it hurt. It felt. But I respect that coming from coming from treatment. Like I I got it. I understood it. But what he did do is he made some phone calls in Phoenix to other treatment centers. And uh, and a guy by the name of Marcus came and picked me up on the 12th of September. And Marcus had seen me for the past year in and out of the program and getting 30 newcomer trips. And Marcus was a director at a place called Cornerstone. And I went into Cornerstone Healing Center in Scottsdale. And, uh, and when Marcus picked me up, um, I remember driving to, and I'm checking myself into treatment. And uh, I'm telling him all this stuff, all this AA stuff, because I'm really good. Like you said earlier, like I come from a recovery background. So I know all the things that need to be said to make you think that I know what I'm talking about and that I know it's very, very much manipulative and uh, and just a fraud, like just a just a facade. And Marcus pierced through all that bullshit, dude. And he let me go on for a little while. But eventually he just finally just told me to shut the fuck up and just to be broken. Just be broken, Richie. Just fucking be broken. Haven't you had enough? Just be broken. And I'm sitting in the back of the CRV on my way to treatment. And all of a sudden, I just started crying, dude. And it hit me, dude. Like, I'm losing my wife. I'm losing my kids. I'm losing. I'll get emotional right now because of, like, just how broken, like, how broken I was, dude. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I could not believe that this had happened to me again. And, uh, and so he gave me the suggestion to be brand new. Don't talk about my nine years of sober, you know, my recovery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, he said, that doesn't matter. That those, he said, Marcus said, those nine years are keeping you drunk. You need to let that Richie die. That Richie's dead. He, he's no longer alive. Like he's dead. Powerful. And, yeah. Powerful. powerful. Wow. And, uh, and that's what I did, man. I, and I went to treatment at a place called Cornerstone in Scottsdale. And um, I just, I was broken. And uh, I didn't like I did a three day silence retreat when I was in because of because it was suggested. I just I did everything that was suggested to me. And um, and that's just what I started doing, bro. And uh, my wife, I thought she was going to divorce me, man. And and um, and, I, and I got to a point. I remember when I was in treatment, praying and telling God, telling God, like, I'm going to tell God anything. <laughs> but I remember saying like, okay, God, like if my wife is going to divorce me and she's going to take my kids and if that's your will, I'll be okay. If I can, if I can just be, if I can just stay sober, I'll be okay. And uh, I just had to get to that point, dude, where I was willing to do anything. Was is Cornerstone Estelle's spot? Is that Estelle? Yeah, Estelle Wallace. Yep. Good man. Yeah, I actually, yeah. I actually met him when I saw you again. So obviously, um, during the pandemic, I was kind of shocked. Uh, they asked me to speak out in this uh, men's retreat that was in Arizona in Prescott, mm -hmm. and I didn't know. I, I don't know if I knew in advance that you were going to be there, but. Uh, but I do. I didn't, I didn't know you were going to be there. Right. I, I remember showing up there yeah. and seeing you. And I was so stoked because as I've told you before, like I've always held you in high regards. You're a, a person that 
was not just a person that taught me how to work in treatment, but also um, just like a good friend, like just a good dude all around. I always just loved your spirit. So I didn't know what your relapse consisted of. I think you told me little bits and pieces while we were there, but to hear like the full detail of it and to feel the emotion and everything is so powerful, so fucking powerful because, because there's a lot of people that go into recovery from, from all walks of life, all different ages that put some time together. Some of them put short amounts of time. Some of them have a few years, but they relapse. Yeah. They relapse. And personally, like what the old timers that taught me early on, they said, um, some people interpret like people coming in the program, staying sober for a minute and then going back out as a relapse to, to us. If they haven't gotten into the steps of the 12 steps, then perhaps it was just taking a break from using and drinking. But like when you're already engulfed in the the process of the steps and you're sponsoring people and you're doing all that stuff and you go out, then obviously like like that could definitely be be interpreted more as a true relapse or a lapse in your recovery. Um, The good thing is, is that you came back. And, and, and when I saw you at that, uh, event we talked there a bunch and then i also met people through you and people at the event which i had a still on this uh on this podcast and he's just a powerful force such a good dude like yeah he's a real one he sees things very very eye to eye like me right and you i think yeah. for that matter um yeah. so it seems even though you're kind of far away from me that from what i see of you that you're on a really good path right now yeah yeah, I am. And uh, I mean, it's a it's a constant in and out. Right. Like, I think I think uh, AA and the principles and practicing the principles. Like one thing I think that the pandemic helped me with was it put me even more so in the in the middle of AA. And mm-hmm. uh, it gave me a vigor and, a, and a, a rigorousness to sponsor dudes and 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 do everything that I could as best as I could to stay connected and uh and that's how it is still to this day um you know it's 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 a constant recommitment to the principles and the and the practices of what aa has taught me you know um i still have my ego and i still have this richie's agenda that likes to creep up and i still have this like pride and the selfishness and the self-seeking and this and this entitlement and i still have all this stuff man but today like i i keep um a I keep a practice of humbleness and doing everything that I can to remain humble, to call myself out on BS, to sponsor other dudes. Like I have a grip of sponsees, um, even in this, I think in the last two and a half, almost three years, this time sober, I've sponsored more dudes in three years than I did in nine. Um, because I just, I just threw myself back then, bro. Like, I'm not even joking you back then. I, I, I thought, like sponsees are supposed to come up to me and ask me if, if if they're supposed to they're supposed to come up to me i don't know it was just a backwards way of thinking that i had back then i think i think i was just so much more egotistical back then and and prideful mm-hmm. and today like no like i look at these newcomers that come in and they're my life raft like mm-hmm. i'm theirs but they're mine and i go up to them i walk up to them i keep myself in the middle of this thing and continue to remain humble and uh, available to the newcomer. Um, and uh, that's kind of what I've done this time because it means so much. My my sobriety today, bro, is um, 
is not, I don't want to use the word better than my nine years because there was a lot of great things that came from my previous sobriety. There was a lot of amazing people that I met like you and a lot of amazing things. I, and I got to meet my wife and I had kids and I had like all these things that happened. So that was great. But my three years are close to no fronts has been so much of a deeper sobriety, um, like a, a just a depth and weight uh, uh, that has come from this this time. I believe it. it. Yeah, I see I, uh, it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just, I'm beyond, beyond grateful. I'm astonished. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of, of, of God's miracle of giving me another chance. My wife, like, oh my gosh, my wife, the, the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of my wife and who she is. Um, and uh, you know, and today I, I, I'm in my house with my three kids and my wife and. And uh, yeah, dude, like things, things are, things are good. Um, you know, so you, you're a very yeah. lucky man too. Cause I know your wife personally, and she's just such a good lady. She's such yeah. a good lady. Yeah, she is. Very, so very lady. I've always put up with me to put up with me. Put up know, with me man. So real quick, um, I'll just show you what some of the comments were. Uh, I didn't know, you know, Isaac, but Isaac's a recovery dream team. He's the homie. Love Isaac. <laughs> Uh, cool. Lauren, Lauren, hi from Texas. Hey, Lauren. <laughs> um, let's see. We got Kiflin said this story is of major importance. Jennifer oh, Turner says hello. Hey, Jennifer. Um, and then let's see. Aaron Spar, who just moved to Tennessee. I remember feeling just like that. And then yeah. Kiflin, Kiflin also says, when I went to cry help after having 13 years, my husband dying of an overdose, me working in treatment 12 plus years, having my own sober living for 10 years, I asked my counselor, please don't tell anyone what I used to do because I don't want anyone to tell me you know what I what to do. The whole yeah. time I was there for my for four months, I just listened. I knew I had to do something different. I always remember need to remember I am one drink away and to stay teachable. Just celebrated nine years, April 29th. Awesome. Kiflin. Yeah, Kiflin. Yeah. Congratulations. So I you know, I appreciate you coming on here today. I'd be watching you. I see your motivational stuff on, on your YouTube. What's your YouTube channel? Uh, it's just uh, Richie Chapman. I actually backed away from that. I was doing this life coaching and motivational stuff for a while, and I kind of backed away a little bit because, again, you want to talk about the Richie show. It, it started. I started to have that ego come back, and I had to check myself on it, man. And I so, so I actually stopped a little bit of it. Um, I've kind of moved more towards partnering with my wife in our fitness journey. So we we now are kind of a team on um, this fitness journey of trying to trying to help people through um, health and wellness and and losing weight and, and body fat. Because, dude, if you look at some pictures of me back when I back when I drank like three years ago, bro, I was at the heaviest like I was not only was I miserable, but I was physically like just ugh. And, puffy, uh, puffy and bloated because of the beer. Yeah, I had this guy, you appreciate this, this guy that I met when I got sober again, RJ, and I don't know where he is, pray for RJ, because he's been in and out for a long time, and he he ended up becoming one of my brothers in this time, and I just love him so much, and, and I don't know where he is right now, but um, uh, but RJ used to always say, where's the honey at, guy? And I never understood, and then one day he told me, dude, when you came in, you looked like you were stung by a thousand bees on your face, because you were just so bloated and so red. And uh, where's, the yeah. honey? <laughs> where's the honey at guy? And so that was a big joke for us for a long time. But 
Yeah, man. So that's what we, that's what we, so I kind of moved away from the motivational stuff. It is still motivating, like the health and the fitness and the journey and all that is, it's kind of wrapped up into it. And so, but that's what Lauren and I kind of team, team up on that. So we get to do that together. I love it. Yeah. Well, great to have you on here. You're a beautiful human being. Give your yeah. family, your wife, my best. And thanks yeah, for absolutely. coming on the corner. And I'll yeah. talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bej. I love you, man. And I watch you. And I just pray the best for you, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. Peace. Have yeah. God bless you. Okay, bless you. Okay, bud. All right. Bye.